The Grind. Hello and welcome back to another instalment of The Grind. As always, I'm joined by Alex Osborne and today we're covering uh, an announcement by the ITF and the ITA on a new accelerator program. We're going to talk about how you go pro and we've got Zimbabwean guest Courtney Locke with us. Alex, how's it going? Yeah, doing well. Thanks, Freddie. How are you doing? Yeah, all good here. All good. Uh, you're in Italy now. I am. Got here last night from Slovenia. So uh, yeah, travel's been good. Enjoying my time in Europe, playing some WTAs, which has been fun. Yeah, awesome. So let's dive into that part of it. So obviously playing the WTA events. So these are 125 style events, which I guess makes the most, I guess the ATP equivalent is the 125 challenges. So it's the highest level before the, the 250 mark. Um, how have you how have you found getting into these events and um, how have you found comparing them to, to obviously life on the, the ITF or WTT tour at the, at the 40 or 60K level? Yeah, definitely a lot of different comparisons I can make. They're, they're quite different. The ITF are getting there with those kind of chally equivalent events, but there's a huge list. I mean, there are so many things that that really make make a difference at this ITF, sorry, the WTA 125 level. I mean, you know, this week, the closest airport is an hour away and they're providing transport if you fly into that airport. Like I think it's, you know, they have to provide transport from one airport to the event. That's the closest one. So that's what they have to do. And and it works or they, you know, pick you up from the train station. It's good. The trains in Italy are pretty easy. So I was able to get one from one side of, you know, Italy to the next, but yeah, things like that. I mean, it's just so helpful things that you don't get on the ITF tour necessarily and wouldn't happen even at the 60 or 80. I don't think they drive an hour to get you. So it's a give and take. Some of these uh, WTA 125s are in some rural areas hard to get to, but then they provide options for you to be able to make the process easier so yeah, I mean it's great. You know, we're getting snacks at the club, we get lunch, we get we get breakfast included in the hotel, we get free hotel, we get you know snacks at the club, water, we get Gatorades, Powerades, kind of sports drinks, which you don't normally get at the ITF level. It really brings down your costs, you know. I mean your expenses. It's just it's awesome. It's it makes the week more enjoyable, less more stress free a little bit, not having to kind of think about accommodation, which is honestly a, such a big expense for us. So. Yeah, it's it's been fun. I mean, players' parties, everyone loves some free food and and cool experiences that are local to that area. Last night I made pasta, which was so much fun. So yeah, it provides some great experiences that you sometimes don't get to see at tennis tournaments because you're just seeing the tennis club and the hotel and, you know, maybe you'll walk around town for a few hours, but getting the tournament to provide these experiences for you and opportunities to try new foods, it's, it's fun. It creates a great atmosphere around the event. Yeah, you're living the high life. Does it feel strange transitioning from because obviously you're at that point where WTA opportunities can open up here and there but for the other weeks you'll be on the ITF tour where there isn't obviously uh let's say these luxuries and it might sound silly to say that like breakfast included is a luxury but that's the reality that you live does it feel strange I mean do you sort of forget about how easy it can be at times like how does that feel going back to an ITF after these last like these last three weeks essentially it'll be definitely different I mean you kind of once you get used to a certain way of doing things I guess I mean not that I'm getting used to it because it's only been three weeks but I think for players that are kind of transitioning in that that middle stage between both tours I think it'll be different it'll be really different because you expect some things at one tournament and when it doesn't happen I mean you see it even being on the ITF players panel I'm getting messages from girls that are sometimes on that brink as well and they're asking questions about why aren't we getting towels at the tournament at an ITF why aren't we getting enough water you know these trivial things but it's also it's a learning curve and experience for me to also be able to I guess take stuff back to the ITF and say hey I think we could be doing this or trying to like in the future 
implementing these things that the WTA provide and try and improve the ITF tour. So I'm in a unique position there where I guess I can try and help build up the ITF tour, but overall it's, it's quite different. So, I mean, and then again, 125 is so close to 180. So, you know, 250 is just the next level above, which is quite a big difference when you look at it um, money-wise in the jump in the prize money and stuff. But yeah, I think it'll be challenging. It was just just different. How's your mindset as you approach these events? I mean, you obviously have a great confidence in your ability and you've had some recent success with a couple of titles only a month or just over ago. Do you change your mindset at all playing in the bigger events or is it business as usual? What? How do you go about that? There's definitely a different atmosphere because I think most players in the WTA have, I mean, nearly everyone has a coach with them. So, and you have the gym provided as well. And I think just you can see a heightened level of professionalism at the WTAs, I think. I think, you know, you've got the coaches warming up the players in the gym and that's something I just do, but a lot of people don't necessarily do the ITF tour. They just kind of run around and jump on court and warm up and and play. And, you know, I do my hour of mobility, (laughs) you know, showing my age and and, uh, things like that from injury. But I think just body management I see is one thing that's taken a lot more seriously at the WTA level because higher stakes, more points, more money up for grabs. And I think with players taking coaches with them, you know, they're trying everything they can to make that little difference. Cause as you get higher in the ranks, I mean, it's minuscule difference between players and an opportunity and breaking through and, and taking advantage of whatever draw comes your way. So yeah, I think mindset for me, I try and keep it the same, even at the ITF level, because I've played a few WTAs in the last few years. So I, I have seen that, I guess, somewhat already, but three weeks in a row is a little different, but you know, you don't want to say it changes your mindset, but I think it does. You being around people more like-minded that are all really taking it seriously. Whereas maybe in the ITF level, some girls aren't you do heighten your your professionalism, I think. It, it just happens, I guess. So it shouldn't, but I, it does for sure. Yeah, that, that sounds natural. I mean, conceptually, that makes sense. If you, in any environment, if you are around people that are doing similar things to you and have similar goals, I think naturally you'll probably lean into that a little bit more, be it in a, a professional workplace setting or a, a sports setting. I think for me, that just makes sense. Let's go now to the announcement of the ITF and the ITA Accelerator Program. So... What's happened here is the ITF uh, has announced in collaboration with the ITA being the Intercollegiate Tennis Association that beginning this month, they're running this program, which offers five main draw places into ITF or more correctly called uh, World Tennis Tour events for women out of the um, NCAA Division I rankings um, as at May 31st, plus those who uh, were made, made the final at the NCAA champs. So the... I guess the uh, the members of the program are Fiona Crawley, who hails from, I think, Rinky Hijikata's uh, alma mater at UNC, um, Mary Storiana, Leah Ma, Diana Schneider, Maddie Sieg, and Fangran Tian, and Lee, Lane Sleeth, um, who qualified as winner of the NCAA singles champs. So they are afforded uh, wildcards into ITF events. They get five of them, and they can be used over a 12-month period one at a W60 event, two uh, for W40s and two for W25s. Um, if one or two of those names sounds familiar, Fiona Crawley, uh, the first one, she actually received a wild card from the USTA into qualies at the US Open. Um, and unfortunately for Aussie fans, knocked over Kim Birrell uh, in the final round, I believe, of qualies to make her main draw debut. And Diana Schneider was actually all the rage at the Aussie Open as a young woman who was 
weighing up whether to go to college or not, all the while she qualified or won through qualifying at the AO and then made the second round. Um, so she had to give up a pretty sizable winner's check to maintain her um, amateur status as a college athlete. But this follows in the footsteps of the ATP doing the same thing with the ITA and their accelerator program, which was announced in July, which I know came with uh, some pretty big praise. Their program slightly more expanded, um, but the point remains it's just now a pathway, a direct pathway for the high performers of the college system to jump on the tour. What do you make of it, Ali? And I, I suppose you may in fact wish that this was sort of around when you were back, back in Arizona, but it's certainly a, a step in the right direction. Although I do wonder if the program could be expanded, but I guess that's that's neither here nor there for the moment. The fact is it's happening and it's, and it's on the way. And if it gets expanded in the future, that's great. Yeah, I'm all for this. I think college tennis is just such a great pathway to go pro. So the fact that we're seeing the ITA and the ITF on board with this. It just shows that to people, players from all over the world, that college isn't the end point of their career, that they can improve their tennis through college uh, and that they can really gain a lot of benefits from the college pathway. And then having that transition to pro, is this just going to make it a little easier for players? Because it's such a, it's a, it is a burden. It's really tough, the transition, especially financially, because you've got, four years of college where you have everything paid for, no worries. It's just no stress. It, it really is seamless. It's great. College is fantastic. And making that transition financially is really tough, but also mentally. I mean, cause you're around a team environment with players who are all rooting you on and cheering you on on the side of the court. And you, you don't get that in pro, but you know, so there are differences like that and little nuances, which, which change, but at the end of the day, I think it's really great for tennis. And uh, Djokovic spoke about it just the other day as well, how how good college is and seeing Ben Shelton and these players come through. Diana Schneider, I mean, she's just a force, you know, and, and now Fiona Crawley, you know, making headlines. So it's huge. It's it's really important uh, seeing college players making it in the pros. Danielle Collins is, you know, someone's been spearheading that and doing very well in the singles game. So... Oh, I just think it's great. I, I would would love to see it if it was possible to have a doubles team here or there, you know, one of the top top three doubles pairs get opportunities because I think doubles is overlooked. And obviously coming from me, I, I do enjoy my doubles, but I think it's, it's so important um, to have doubles players represented as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think ironically almost Diana Schneider's um, from North Carolina State, her her participation in this program is going to be non-existent. She is already ranked 83 in the world. She, as I said, qualified and made the second round of AO and she's played a few big events um, since. I think she made the second round of French and maybe Wimbledon as well. Um, so I actually looked uh, earlier and her prize money per Wikipedia, and I'm not sure how uh, relevant that is, but her prize money for the year is just shy of 400K US, um, of which she would have taken, um, I'm guessing, if she's only just turned pro now, because this is only eligible for um, recipients who have finished their education, it says, She's obviously foregone quite a large sum, but obviously saw the benefits in going to the college system uh, for the, I guess, for, for the one year. And and yeah, she'll obviously reap the rewards long-term, but um, she's not going to be playing W25 events at all. So I wonder whether they'll uh, perhaps give that to sort of the next in, or maybe they'll just consider it a bit of a gain for the year. But yeah, she won't be needing that at all. Not at all. <laughs> Definitely not. I guess taking it back to something you did talk about just then, which was the process of transitioning. Now we've spoken about it a bit and Lockie Puel does um, the college segment on the first serve on Monday nights, but 
One thing that I don't fully have my head around is the concept of going pro. So obviously when you're in college, you have to maintain your amateur status, except now for the change in the nil deals. But I think that means you can make money outside of your sport, but not from, from your sport. So you can't be paid for a result, but you can pay, be paid for a, um, a brand collaboration or something like that. What are the actual steps one takes to go from a college athlete? Um, obviously, you've got that team environment. You play for years, coaches, um, some of the resources you would have would be unbelievable. But then what are the steps that you take to then go professional? Uh, I mean, I'm guessing at some way or somehow you have to either end your studies or end them prematurely. And then I guess you lose your amateur status. But then how do you how do you get into events? How do you build up a ranking? Before college, I played a few 25s around Australia. I got that experience. I might have had a few points, maybe the lowest ranking you can have. And through college, I actually didn't play anything because I, through, during the summers, took summer school classes. And for one or two summers, I went home because by the end of the year, you're absolutely cooked. You're so tired. You've played so much tennis. Honestly, tournaments wasn't on my radar. Yep. But I still knew I wanted to play pro after. And I did do wish I had done it a little different and played some and, and stayed in the U.S., instead of studying one summer playing. But again, I also didn't have the money to do that. And now colleges as a buy-in for some of the, a lot of these players, they they promote that they'll pay for you to play some fall events. So that's becoming huge in college tennis where you have a certain amount of weekends that you can play in the fall and then an amount in the spring. The spring you're playing in-season events that go towards the end of your rankings. So you can't really play in pro events in the spring, but in the fall, uh, schools are saying, hey, come to us. You don't have to play any of the fall school events, but you can go and play some ITF events, which help either keep their ranking or help them get points. But normally the players that just have a ranking because they really want to play pro, that's the buy-in, that they can try and keep their ranking by having the school pay for them to play fall events. So some girls at my university do that and just a lot that I've met on tour, that's just the way it's going now. When I was going through it, that wasn't the case, really. There were a few girls on a team that would play maybe one ITF during the fall. That, that was it. So then when I started playing, I was 23 and I went and played in Bethany Beach, Delaware, and I played a 25. I got into a 25, which honestly wouldn't happen right now, I think, with especially since COVID, I don't think that someone without a ranking would get into a 25 qualities. But it dropped a lot. So I got in and then I played about maybe two or maybe two or three more, so maybe four events in the June, July, where there's always a lot in the summer in America after I graduated from my master's and I was just sliding into qualies and getting in. I don't even think I was getting into doubles at all. And it was just tough to find a partner who would want to play with you because you didn't have mm. a ranking. So that was really tricky. Then I went and did some 15s in Mexico. So yeah, it's 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 a grind. It is really tough trying to get into events but now with the world tennis tour ranking or the I, I can't quite remember the exact wording of it so they've now created because you have the UTR system where it has the algorithm to create the number for you and the ITF have come out and said you know we've made this number so now I guess through I think college and through playing certain events this number helps get you in a certain kind of listing on the alternate list so that it improves your position even if you don't have a, a WTA ranking that kind of next number helps provide a listing you know with regards to probably college results and things like that so that's helped I think again with the transition and helping players at least have some, some sort of number to their name it was based on my Australian ranking that I had which obviously after college I barely had one I think so 
now it's kind of become a universal number, which is great because you don't know what number three in Australia versus number three in Mexico is. So now that there's some sort of system, it's, it's really good. Yeah, okay. So is it a matter of if you don't have any ranking points, you've basically just got a, well, now there's, I suppose you can rely on a different metric, but if you don't have any ranking points, are you just looking out for events that might have a weak field and hoping that basically there are so few entrants that there's a, a spot left for you in qualifying? Yeah, it's it's a big gamble. It's just a huge risk-taking scheme that you have to try and figure out and it's really tough but you are you're looking for tournaments where the lists are just going to drop and you're going to slide in and also that's why you see a lot of players going camping out in Mexico the Cancun kind of resort style events Tunisia Thailand I think and and these other places where you've got multiple events weeks after week and you kind of get opportunities to get matches and just try and work your way into the main draw to get points. Yeah, I saw on YouTube as well that um, Felix uh, Mishaka, I think his last name is, a British kid who's 19 and has been doing this series called The Road to 1 ATP Point. And he's built up like a pretty decent YouTube following. Um, and I haven't watched a lot of his videos, but I did watch um, one where he was playing a tournament to win a wild card into a main draw of an ITF. So like the ITF would be playing on say whatever week and the week prior to that, they would hold like the, the wild card tournament event. And so you could win the wild card into that to then get you into the ITF event. But like, I mean, he, at this point in time, I think he has since developed a ranking, but at this point in time, he didn't have an ATP point. And so he's gone, I think a year trying to build a point and then having to win like six matches in a row at a wild card tournament just to make the main draw to then, you know, he's equally likely to play the one seed with a ranking of 400 as he is anyone else in the draw. So, I mean, it's absolutely savage. It's really tough. I actually remember when I was coming through seeing that page active around the same, same time I was starting. So, yeah, it is really tough. And some tournaments, especially some of these resort-style tournaments where players really are coming from no ranking and maybe even no world tennis ranking, they have the pre qualies events. But that's more, I think, seen at the ITF um, 15s resort style where the mm. two days before they'll have the pre-qualies it's not super common but they are around for players to be able to help get them into these events it makes sense as well that they do it at the resort style tournaments because if you're going to have this basically a dedicated resort to uh, a tennis ecosystem uh, you, you don't really want to just have an itf each week where on monday the resort's full and on saturday the resort is empty because you know it's the nature of the tournament every day half the crowd is is cut and so I suppose if you're then running wildcard tournaments for the following week, pre-qualifying into qualifying, like it's probably not a bad business model. It's a very good business model. It keeps people around, that's mm. for sure, and keeps them interested. So it keeps people coming back. So yeah, it's it's definitely good for them. Yeah, I remember when Lee too was uh, trying to build his ranking coming off that um, pretty random wildcard out of the AO. He spent uh, months in, in Tunisia and then um, speaking to a few p people along the way, it's, it seems like a pretty common thing. You just plant yourself at a resort, hope you have a good few months or a good few weeks scattered throughout a few months, really. Um, and not a bad way to live if you can do it. Yeah, but I've done it once and it's tough. It's mentally really draining, really tough. But, it, you know, it, it helps you kickstart your career and get the yeah. points. So there's benefits to it, but it is very tough. Yeah, I suppose that leads into the uh, discussion we had with Courtney Locke last week, which is um, obviously what I don't see is the, the challenges that you people like yourself and Courtney face. But uh, when I'm speaking to you, I'm thinking, wow, like resort, Tunisia, three months, playing some tennis, that sounds pretty cool. So for me, that sounds like living the dream, but obviously I haven't been through that. 
Now, speaking of Courtney, what did you make of our chat with him? So we caught up with Courtney last week. He's from Zimbabwe. His brother, Ben, is a pro as well. Uh, he comes from a long line of tennis players and he's made it to a career high of 231 in doubles. His singles ranking didn't quite take off as much as his doubles did. So he opted to prioritize the doubles game. Ali, you've obviously got to know him through the player panel and you did say to me that uh, you thought he often had some pretty good contributions in your discussions there. So you thought he'd be a good guest. And I, for one, loved chatting to him. Yeah, I loved the chat with Courtney. I thought it was great. I mean, just his stories about the Davis Cup ties was just great. Made me laugh and it's just incredible. So inspiring. I loved, you know his connections to the black family i've worked with cara before so that was uh something close to my heart and just hearing about his struggles with his his injury again i think a lot of similarities uh between us with regards to that and he's had it tough though i mean it's inspiring he, his drive to play and, and keep competing the fact that he went through the college pathway too i could just draw a lot of similarities and really enjoyed our chat i think he brings a lot to the game and a lot to the itf players panel for them on the men's side so yeah, great guy, and um, I'm wishing him all the best. Yeah, absolutely. His um, love of country is, it felt enormous speaking to him. I mean, obviously, he he speaks about his father and his mother having history playing and representing um, Zimbabwe, and then the, the little anecdote about him keeping a flag in his bag since he was like four years old. The story of his father, who um, he'll reveal that, but he sort of said that if there's one thing I can, if there's one thing I get out of this life, I, I want to see my boys play for my country one more time. That's um, that's pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, it was it was a special moment hearing that. I mean, I haven't had the ability to represent Australia yet, but I can only imagine that it's a really special one. And he's so lucky to be able to do that, you know, for his country and. To see the pride that he has is just really, really special. Yeah, no, he was fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited to to chat some some tennis. Fantastic. So, Courtney, one thing I wanted to ask you um is something we mentioned just earlier. That there's been a a movie that has come out about yourself and uh, your brother, your performance as part of the Zimbabwean Davis Cup team, and in the trailer for that movie, it mentions that your father was a player and um, represented the country as well. So, I guess. Uh, what I'd like to know is it, tennis has obviously always been in your family. It, was it something you just sort of, as long as you can remember, you've had a racket in your hand? Like, can you talk about how you got into the game? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool. So basically, it's a, um, yeah, it was a collaboration between us, our federation, and the ITF. You know, there just kind of wasn't a lot of footage and, and insights into, you know, on the ground of a Davis Cup tie, especially outside of the World Group Davis Cup. We don't actually have professional events like challenges or, or WTAs or ITFs in Zimbabwe for the last five years so it's um you know davis cup is basically all the the country gets to see professional tennis live so it's such a big thing and you know heritage going back um we had two brothers and obviously a sister as well but the black family and they all got to number one in the world in doubles and you know i think we're all top 50 in singles so um incredible just ambassadors for the, for the country and for the sports and everything but because of that history you know, Davis Cup has this prestige in Zimbabwe. And, um, you know, we just wanted to, we didn't, you know, it was just an opportunity. We were playing the number one seed, Uruguay, in the World Group 2 playoff. And we thought, you know, it's a great opportunity to, basically, we just wanted to say, let's get the camera rolling. You know, we gave them unprecedented access to, to everything. It was mic'd up in the locker room and, you know, on the bench and everything. And we just said, let's see what, what comes of it. And uh, it actually just ended up being a crazy crazy tie um played over yeah about five days so anyway it was, it was action-packed weekend and i think um it's come together really nicely but yeah you'll see in the in the documentary my mom and dad both played my dad went to the states um, on tennis scholarship and and then he 
didn't you know he, he played davis cup for two three years played a couple of the satellites back then and then didn't end up you know pursuing it further than that but he was he was good and he played i think yeah three or four davis cup ties and my uncle actually also played davis cups it was in our family and and in the documentary you see videos of us hitting you know and we're three four years old it's pretty cool to to go back on that and um yeah both my sisters also played so we definitely got installed at a young age. That's certainly a strong lineage you've come from, and uh, I, so I'm sure I'm sure you you took to it pretty quickly. You, you alluded to the fact that your your siblings all play. So how competitive was your childhood? I mean, I, I can only imagine that on on weekends and before and after school, you're trying to take on your brothers and your brother and your sisters. I mean, was that a, a big part of what your relationship with your siblings involves? Yeah, definitely. I mean, both I got two older sisters, and then obviously my brother um, Benjamin, who's who's older than me, he plays on the Challenger Tour as well. And so, um, you know, my brother kind of always set the the path, and and um, you know, kind of yeah, made made a way for me in a sense in in the direction of, of what it took to get to where I'm now. But definitely, I you know I'm the biggest age gap. There's three and a half years between my brother, and they were pretty close. So. I remember being so young and seeing them on the court and I was just like standing at the side of the fence, you know, like desperate to try and get on court. So I probably started the youngest um, because I was just desperate to, to do what they were doing. And, um, you know, it, uh, I think it probably instilled a fire in me when I was, when I was really young or loved for the sport. One thing that I was going to lead on from that, Courtney, is your home country of Zimbabwe is not necessarily known in the global sense for tennis. However, as you alluded to, there is a strong history there and it is the black family that, primarily um, is most well-known. Cara Black, of course, 60 titles, number one doubles yeah, player in the good. world, like crazy, crazy numbers. As you sort of moved through, I guess, your um, your junior journey, were, were the Black family members uh, people that you would aspire to? And do they have any involvement in Zimbabwean in tennis? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can remember going with my brother and, and my sisters. My, my parents took us. My dad was actually commentating on a Davis Cup match against uh, the US and and McEnroe came Agassi came and and I remember sitting in the stand watching Wayne play um, Agassi and um, you know it was just yeah I was so young I think it was 2000 or 2001 but anyway um, there were so many Davis Cup matches that we used to just go there and sit there and just idolize them you know and, and um, they they definitely were kind of inspirations and idols for us um, and then especially because of my brother and I playing doubles we obviously get a lot of comparison to them you know, we haven't achieved what what they did yet and um you know so we obviously are still aspiring to, to, to do more and um and, and get there but yeah they um Wayne has worked with us quite a little bit Cara I know has done a lot of you know development clinics and she's gone out to the rural areas and done a lot of outreach on that um and I think Byron is, is living in South Africa so um they've definitely been yeah incredible incredible ambassadors for the country and um left this kind of legacy and love for tennis in the country absolutely i think um we as australians in particular have a soft spot for anyone that uh pours their heart into the davis cup format that's certainly something that we can um we can relate to on that note you'll you'll like this and you can look it up after but there's a famous uh story of the the black brothers and, and kevin elliott is actually our coach now um he was he won two grand slams as well and uh they went over to muldura and they played aussie in the second yes. round of world group and, I know this um, one, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think they knew, the Aussie team really knew, but Byron and Wayne grew up on a grass court. So at their house, they've got two grass courts. And if I'm not mistaken, Rafter and Philip Pousis was on the team. And I think the um, 
I'm not saying, I think the Woodies won the team. I'm not sure. Anyway, they yeah, it was the biggest shock. It was obviously our biggest result, and they went there and they won on the deciding fifth set rubber. And I think Philippusis got sick and he couldn't play the fifth set, uh, the fifth rubber. And uh, we ended up winning that. And I mean, there was just this explosion back in Zimbabwe. It was yeah, it was. There's still you know banners of it in, in the tennis centers and everything. So that was um, yeah. I just remember hearing about this this Muldura tie that the Aussies were so surprised at how well they played on grass and it's because they grew up on it. So are there many grass courts in Zimbabwe? Because the logic must have been from the Australian side, well, we are apparently a grass court sort of tennis nation, particularly back in that time. And so there must have been this perception that the Zimbabweans would not adapt to the grass courts as well. But lo and behold, the boys had it in their backyard forever. Yeah, like I'm not sure when Aussie Open switched to hard from grass. I don't know what year that was, but obviously Philippoussis or after the Woodies grew up playing so much on grass. And obviously having big games and big serves, Wayne and Byron are obviously shorter and smaller. So I think on paper, it looked like a great idea. They just have unbelievable returns and they're so low to the ground that they just thrive on grass. So it was it was a crazy, crazy tie. Oh, that is the stuff of legend. That is unbelievable. Being a Zimbabwean player, and obviously you've you've had your brother to idolize throughout your childhood and your junior journey, Courtney, what opportunities are available as a junior in Zimbabwe? Do you have to... Does there come a point in time where you you have to make a move somewhere because there's not the the high level elite pathways? Yeah, definitely. You know, Zimbabwe definitely. I mean, my brother and I. He left at 12 years old. He went to the ITF Academy in there was an ITF Development Center in Pretoria, and um, I think the ITF has three around the world. One is in Africa, one in South America, one in Asia. And you know, you get a scholarship and they cover all your training and everything. And they would take one or two players a year. So we were fortunate to get a scholarship to that. And I went three years later and um, we had to leave. You know, there wasn't enough competition for us. And um, we had to kind of focus. We couldn't be playing other sports, et cetera. And so we went to South Africa and that was better. You know, we got to compete and everything. And I mean, Lloyd Harris is yeah, a friend of mine. And we um, ended up, you know, we played doubles together and grew, grew up playing against each other. And actually, Mark Pullman, um, you know, he's South African. And uh, he, I remember playing him in, in under 12s events and um, we laugh about it now, but he obviously moved to Oz and, and I think it worked out best for him. So I think you have the, you know, like Lloyd, an incredible example of just, he did it through South Africa and he did it with coach and everything, but you know, extremely talented, extremely hardworking. But I think for the, for the vast, vast majority, it's not that easy. And I think my brother and I, we had to leave home and then we went to the States, you know, and we weren't ready to go pro right away. And we almost had to play a bit of catch up, if, if I'm honest. I feel like although we had done well in juniors playing the ITF events and getting close to the Grand Slam, that kind of stuff, I think we had to catch up while we were in college. We had to, you know, work harder, yeah, get more exposed and, and everything. So we definitely had to play a bit of catch up for some years. So I guess, Courtney, later in your teenage years, you, you obviously made that decision to go to college and thought that was the right pathway, I think coming from Australia too and I, I started playing tennis quite late so I knew that college also was going to be my path where I had a lot of building blocks to kind of get over before trying to play pro. Talk us through that that experience and the process of trying to get recruited to go to college from South Africa and, and what that experience was like at um, in Las Vegas. Again my brother kind of set the precedent for that by you know he went to play Orange Bowl and Eddie Herr you know at the end of the year and there's obviously all those college coaches out there and they're coming up to you and saying hey come on a visit that kind of stuff. I mean, he ended up going to Florida State. I, I was just kind of always, it was always the plan to go there. My parents didn't have the money to, you know, for us to play. And to be quite frank, we weren't ready to, to go onto the tour. So, um, yeah, then I did the same. I went to go play Orange Bowl, Eddie Her. There was a bunch of coaches and 
I went on on four, five recruiting visits. One of them was actually Florida State. Yeah, I mean, I love my college experience. I think I I learned so much um, about myself. You know, when you could come home, like you guys know, it's so far once a year. You know, just dealing with a different culture and how intense that college environment is. Matured mentally, got so many matches in, so I can't rave enough. I mean, you know, Andy, obviously, but I can't rave enough about the college system. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's such a, a perfect pathway and I advocate highly for it. I think it's amazing experience um, and one that everyone should try and experience in their life. I, I was just going to say, I think Novak just gave it a glowing endorsement uh, when, yeah. asked, when asked yeah. about Ben Shelton's win over Tiafo. Um, yeah. So, you know, that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. That's pretty cool. What did that transition look like for you? It can be, it can be challenging because it's a different game sometimes, but I don't know on the men's side if it's a little different to the women's. Ali, I think you, you can actually relate kind of similar position with our rankings, the singles and doubles. But, you know, I did really well in doubles. And singles in college, but I was playing, you know, number two for UNLV in Vegas and I was playing number one doubles. But I already had won some futures and 15Ks in the summer. So I already was about 500 when I was in college and I had one or two singles points. So when I graduated, I obviously didn't start from scratch. And as I, again, my brothers pushed me so much, which I'm so grateful for. But as I graduated, th- that next day I flew out and, and I went to go play 10 weeks of futures in a row. So wow. I, I, I couldn't wait to get out there. He was obviously excited that we could travel together and everything. So I think my doubles, it was actually the hardest part was not being able to, that my, my singles and doubles rankings didn't, the graphs didn't go together. I was winning futures quite regularly. And then I was actually, then I found, got an issue a year and a half later where it's like, okay, we've broken through into challenges. Now I couldn't play the singles. So it was a tricky one where I just, I did so well in doubles so fast that I almost had to make that decision. And obviously financially, it didn't make sense where my brother was in for singles and challenges. We were in for doubles and challenges and you're getting paid more, combinations covered, you know, you're getting more coverage if it's better for sponsors. It was it was a hard thing for me because I kind of had to just forego my singles aspirations for that time period. And um, I started practicing more doubles and everything and, and really shifting my gear towards doubles. Coming from college really helped me playing so many matches like I played in the spring season as you know you play you know 30 matches and multiple matches in a day coming off that right into futures I, I felt yeah I felt good I felt felt really happy about it because it's a it's a common thing that we hear is it that at some point in time that there, there arrives a moment where you must make a decision or, or you should make a decision about whether you try and build the singles ranking up to the doubles or whether you go forward with the doubles ranking as the number one priority. We've heard about that from Callum Puddergill, the Aussie, uh, Mikhail Pervalarakis, Christian Harrison to a lesser extent. And it's and, and yourself, Ali, it's, it's obviously like quite a big challenge. But then how do you transition back into singles mode when you're back in the Davis Cup camp? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, you're going to see in the documentary, but uh, spoiler alert, I end up losing the the deciding singles match and uh, six four in the third and you know I was four three up serving a breakup and it, it was tricky because I decided to I wasn't sure if I was going to play singles or not and uh, I decided to play three challenges leading up to the Davis Cup and I played one twenty five and a seventy five and etc you know because that's my schedule that's what I was getting into and that's what I was excited to do whereas in hindsight you know if I play you know when you have a next Davis Cup tie next year knowing I'm going to play singles I'm obviously going to schedule that different so. It is tricky because I ended up getting injured in that that final match, and now I'm out for you know I was out for seven months. But ultimately, I'll do it all over again. You know, it's uh, uh, playing for for my country is the biggest honor. I always see, and my brother sees it the same way. But 
yeah, it's not easy. I think sometimes doubles players, you almost get labeled as a doubles player. And then, you know, you're like, no, I, I can actually play pretty good singles. So, um, you know, your ranking or results might not show it, but the level's definitely there. So you just mentioned um, some injuries you've had. Um, I've watched the little series you did on on YouTube about your uh, hip injury that you've kind of, the ordeal you've, I know a little bit about some hip and then back injuries as, as uh, recently actually had some pretty big um, surgery as well myself. So what's, I guess, oh, been sure. the biggest struggle um, that you've faced with this injury, I guess? It, it's tough mentally trying to figure out, you know, especially, I guess, later in your 20s, is do you keep playing? Do you keep pushing? When's it time to maybe stop? I don't know. All those thoughts kind of go through your head, I guess. Where have you been mentally? What's gotten you through those tough times uh, coming back from injury? Yeah, I mean, Ali, uh, as I said, whatever I'll say now, you can probably relate to, you know, um, to fault. But I think that the hardest thing was probably the mental battle. Um, and I've had four four surgeries um, already, and, and I'm only 26. So, and then you know, I refused back surgery when I was younger, and I've had you know these stress fractures. So I've had a lot of actually time out, um, and I feel like I'm, you know, I've done four years in college. And then I've missed about two and a half years due to injury. So I feel like I'm 21, you know, 20 years old. So I think I knew that, you know, deep down when I'm out for a year and I'm here. But um, obviously to pay all the medical bills, I had to, I had a finance degree. So I had to go work in an accounting firm and it was great to keep my mind off everything. And, you know, I was grinding nine to five <laughs> long hours. And in my mind, I was getting up at, at 5 a.m. And I was going to the gym and doing an hour and a half of rehab, you know, with my bio. Then I'd go see my physio. And then literally at nine, be in the office and work a nine to five day, you know, just like a normal, you know, person. So, um, but I think I always kept that drive of like, you know, I'm going to get back. And, and, um, but I think the hardest thing was other people probably not understanding that. And, you know, you chat to people and they're like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> three hip surgeries and you know, that kind of stuff. It's, it's people just kind of associate that where, okay, are you winding down and everything? So I think just being able to deal with, other people's opinions all the time but me knowing actually I've got this drive in me and fire in me and every day when I go to sleep it's the last thing I think about when I wake up in the morning the first thing I think about is getting back on the court so I don't think a lot of people would understand that unless you're going through it um so I think the mental mental side of things is probably the hardest I don't know if you felt the same yeah yeah definitely I mean I think the biggest factor is people saying you know, the temptation, I guess, right, to live the normal life. And and you, you see that through the injuries and the time you spent just with friends and, and having money come in. Like you, I mean, working nine to five, that's amazing. I was coaching full-time while still doing, you know, multiple hours a day of rehab. And I think you can see the temptation, but the fact that you're going to sleep and waking up thinking about tennis and still wanting to get out there. And I can really relate also to kind of backtracking the the years it's like okay you finished school at 22 23 and then you're injured for two and a half and COVID and it's like I've only played on yeah. tour for two years I feel like so yeah. you know and I'm 28 exactly. so I totally understand where you're coming from and, and trying to backtrack and, and be like yeah I'm still fresh I'm still you know got more potential and more to give to the sport so no I, I absolutely um, understand where you're coming from. Someone, one of my brother's best friends he, he's, he's working in, in London he said to my brother my brother was down I think he had a couple of tough weeks or whatever and and he's like, you know, how are you and Quartz doing? So now we're good, man. But we've had a couple of tough weeks. Like mentally, we're just fried. Probably need to take, you know, some time off and just get back into it. He goes, you guys are living the dream. Trust me. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. So. No, I, I can relate to that. I think every time um, 
Ali and I have been in a discussion with someone like yourself, Courtney, and they've said, you know, that there's a, they might have had injuries like yourself or some other challenges. And there's a, there's a thought that pops in their head. I, my response is I'd swap what I'm doing for what you're doing instantly. So I I suppose it's always like a grass is greener thing, but no, certainly, um, certainly living the dream. And uh, actually that ties in quite well. Speaking of living the dream, I saw in that trailer that your father made you carry a Zimbabwean flag in your tennis bag for as for since you were a kid. Can you talk to us about, uh, I guess, the purpose behind that? Because um, that that speaks to me as if um, you know you are living your dream, having now represented your country and and being able to, I guess, go to battle for for your people. Um, it, it certainly seems seems like it's come full circle from the kid that used to carry the the flag in his tennis bag. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, really, very attentive, but. Uh... No, from a young age, he, he said to us to keep that, you know, the flag and you know, all the first thing with my bag and we go to juniors, all that kind of stuff and take it. Even when we went to college, we took that, that flag with us. And, um, you know, it's funny. I always joke with my brother, but we could win a challenger or qualify for ATP or, you know, my, my dad, he's, he's excited, but he's never as happy as he is when we win a Davis Cup match. And he's just like, he just can't wait for a smile. Because for him, that's the most... You know, that's what gives him the most joy and he has so much pride for the country. I think, you know, he he had a death scare and he said to us when he came outside of that operation about 10 years ago, he said, what I said to God was, I, my daughter's down the aisle and I just want to see my kids, my boys play a Davis Cup match at home. And so, you know, like that's what means the most to him. That kind of pride has, has kind of been passed on to my brother and I. And, you know, we always tell people we don't play it for money. Oftentimes we, we don't get paid probably what we should. We never turn down. Uh, national duty you know to to play so it's uh yeah something we hold very dear that is remarkable and that yeah that that's quite that's quite profound Courtney what's um what's next for Zimbabwe uh in 2024 for the Davis Cup what's your path forward look like yeah so um we we're back into world group two so in the documentary you see actually the 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 last scene is is explaining that since the filming of the documentary we would drop down to to group three and and it just promoted my brother did that with you know with some younger guys actually in the team and incredibly um, I went down to watch it was here in South Africa so I went down to go support the guys but um, I was injured and our number two was injured at the time as well so we're back into world group two we're obviously going to wait for the draw at the end of next week to come out um, and there's some big nations to play I think Mexico Monaco um, you know the, the, depending on the results so we were waiting to see that and yeah, hoping to, you know, to, to get a home tie again. We obviously feel so comfortable playing at home and um, obviously my brother needs a bit of help on the single side. I think it's been, well, you know, we had a very good player before Takani Ganganga who was about 250 and, and we had a good, and then he got injured and his, his kind of career ended uh, a little earlier than he wanted to. So my brother definitely needs some help on the single side, um, but we yeah we're excited we're excited for um, what's to come and I think this documentary will also give the federation give you know the public um, a really good insight and get them fired up for next year if we have another home time. And one thing that leads on from that is we I spoke to Mark Woodford earlier this year and he is obviously involved at the ITF level with the decision making on the the Davis Cup. And when the changes were made to the Davis Cup about how there's the World Group. Um, at the end of the year and if you're in the world group there's yeah. no such thing as home ties or anything like that that was met with uh, a lot of probably disappointment and anger in in our country um, and I know that Mark felt that individually uh, what do you make of the 
the changing to the formatting and also like no best of five anymore. Um, what do you make to the changes of the formatting in the Davis Cup as a player who represents a country that has a different experience to, I suppose, a world group member at this point in time? I mean, yeah, I think Mark Mark's obviously an incredible person. Obviously, Ali and I have got to, to know more while he chairs the men's side of the, the ITF tour panel. So I've had a lot of conversations with him about Davis Cup and, you know, certain things with prize money, distribution, everything. You know, he's always always open to hearing my thoughts and, and our opinion on the players. I think I, I understood both sides. I understood, you know, the, the pressure from their side with the players, the big players not playing because it was such a long campaign, especially if they've won it before and they wouldn't really commit to that campaign. But personally, just because of the history, I love best of five sets. I love the three-day, you know, weekends. I love the fact that doubles was its own day on a Saturday. I was fortunate enough to play a five-setter where, you know, we saved match points against the top 50 player and we won in, you know, in five sets and just like that. That was the best memory I've had in tennis. So I loved, you know, it was like over four hours. I loved the five sets. So that probably I missed because that was unique. You felt like you were playing, you know, a Grand Slam or something different. Yeah, I think I understand that's where the world is going. And and you have to, I think it's a tricky balance between managing that, but also preserving the history. For smaller nations like Zimbabwe, I think it's so important to have these home ties and because as I said, we, otherwise they don't get to see tennis and that's the only professional tennis they get to see. Yeah, I, I think I understand both sides, but I definitely have a love for you know for the history of the game. Yeah, uh, unreal. I guess, when are we going to see you back on court, Courtney? What's the rest of your recovery like? And yeah, when are we going to see you back out there? Back training now and I'm flying off to the States uh, in a week. I'm going back to Vegas. I'm going to train there with um, with the team and, and I got one of my best friends lives there. So I'm going to go there, train for four weeks, and then go to the Vegas Challenger in October. So that'll be my first event. Yeah, hoping to play through the States and maybe into, to finish into South America at the end of the year. Probably won't play singles for the rest of the year just to kind of preserve my body and, and, and the recovery and everything. And then, yeah, get ready to, to play some singles next year for sure. Fantastic. Thank you, Courtney. We certainly appreciate you taking part of your recovery time out to chat to us. It's uh, very insightful to hear from a man such as yourself, obviously coming from a, um, a distant part of the world to us. And uh, that little insight you've dropped around the failed Davis Cup campaign in Mildura I couldn't help but love. So thank you for that. And we hope it's a, a strong recovery from here and it all goes well. And yeah, no, thanks. Thanks, Roddy. Thanks, Alex. And yeah, I look forward to uh, seeing more of your guys' podcasts. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing you. Ali, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Roddy. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel.